Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! I'm telling you, my spider sense is tingling. Amazing Spider-Man number 129 mint condition. Worth a thousand bucks. Comic book. No, it's not just a comic book. This is the first appearance of the Punisher. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Willow, but it's the fat signal. How do I get it to work? Willpower, like the Green Lantern's ring. You call it comic books. That's so cute. Cute, it's very rugged and manly. Just a bit geek, huh? I think it's sweet. It must be really hard when all your friends have, like, superpowers. You must feel like Jimmy Olsen. You can't charge innocent people for saving their lives. Spider-Man does. Action is his reward. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to another episode of We've Got the Lurgy. Also, I don't think we do that podcast. Hey, Kids Comics. You're your art. You've actually got the Lurgy this week, have you? I always do. Yeah. I've, I've, I'm, I'm, um... I've, I learned how to handle it like a man. Do you really? Yeah. I'm, I'm Snotty Muck, Muck Head Cold. And you're my plucky superhero sidekick, Flem. <laughs> Not anymore. I coughed a load of that up before. Excellent. Good. I'm, I'm very glad that you have coughed up lots of Flem. Thus meaning that you actually sound moderately okay. Mm-hmm. And I sound awful. So I do apologise, lovely listener. Being hit in the cigarettes today. Yes, I've, I've been uh, been overdosing. Um, put it at least this way, lovely listener. I'm not breathing on you, so you're not going to catch it. So that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, they have the radio waves in between them. Keeping yeah, them safe. keeping them safe. Do we have radio waves on a podcast? I don't think so, do we? No. no, there's no there's no radio waves. It's all about. The, the digibytes and megabits. The digital vibrations. Yeah, that we that we send through the ether via a mixture of uh, futuristic gobbledygook and cloud signal. Yeah. It's all done by cloud signals. And that's pigeon mail. Yeah, that's how we upload the podcast. A pigeon carries it to, to a, a secret location where it is then placed on a burning fire and uh, a, a, a rug is wafted towards said fire... And the megapixel Julie things that make up the recordings of our pearls of wisdom are sent up into the ether, and then they miraculously materialise within the iPod. Other MP3 players are available of the listener. Because, you know, that's how technology works. Unless they listen to it through a computer. Oh, I don't understand how that works. That's, no. that's, phew, that's just futuristic. Magic. Yes, that's magic. That's magic! It's the lovely Debbie McGee. Anyway, yeah, um, so we're going to try and bang this one out quickly. That's what she said. Uh, because I can barely breathe. Our first email. Some say he is single-handedly responsible for changing the trade dress on Marvel's Essentials paperbacks. That scumbag. Hmm. And that, without him... The Blue Ribbon Digest comics would never have existed. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. The subheading this week, Superman 7. Not to be confused with Ultra 7. I don't think we would make such a mistake. Unless it was Ultraman 7. Ultraman 7. Yes, that would be... It would be easy to make that mistake between mm-hmm. Ultraman 7 and Superman 7. Super Ultra. Super Ultraman 7. Then you got a crossover? The quest for Spock. Was he like Firestorm? Yes. Into one person. <laughs> Super Ultraman. 
Ultraman 7 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> um, they are a great people, Andrew and Michael, if they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. And that was my best Marlon Brando impression. Was it? No. I should have stuffed something in my mouth. Should you? Yeah, you'll go through on the board of my daughter's wedding. That would have been Marlon Brando, wouldn't it? I could play this like a bagel in a suitcase. Okay. Yeah. Howdy, Leylands. Howdy, Luke. Still enjoying your trip through the history of Superman. The noughties, which I'm calling the double O's, just for the pun, were an interesting time in the DCU and the identity and infinite crises and such. Unfortunately, the injection of the Superman, the movie stuff into the mythos, did not play well in execution and hurt the character in the short run. Nevertheless, this decade actually brought me somewhat back into the Superman fold. I really liked what Kurt Busiek was doing with stories like Camelot Falls and the Third Kryptonian, even though both of them were severely impacted by delays, thanks to the art teams and other aspects beyond Busiek's control. Those delays, though, did lead to some really good fill-ins, including Superman 659, which deals with a woman who began to see Superman as an actual angel and the ramifications of that. The next issue, 660, was Busiek's brilliant revamp of the prankster. Gone was the lame toy man rip-off. Prankster's new lot in life was to plan and execute elaborate and time-consuming but ultimately fairly harmless pranks on Superman and the Metropolis PD and SCU in order to keep them busy while his clients performed a more mundane crime. It was win-win. The criminals got to rob their banks without Superman stopping them and Prankster was able to make Superman look foolish and get paid lots of money in the process. It was a rogue profile of the type which Jeff Johns has popularised over in Flash and it translated perfectly. The story involves a mid-level gangbanger who hires Prankster but then tries to shake him down for weapons and technology. Needless to say, the Prankster doesn't like the rules of the game being changed midway. See, I think I've read most of that. I just don't have any memory of them. That good, then? No, it was more a case of I was just getting increasingly disillusioned with the fact that you couldn't actually rely on Superman being out when it was supposed to be. Yeah. And you couldn't actually rely on the fact that the story within the issue would be the one that was solicited. Mm. Now, you didn't care about that in the 70s, but it's not the 70s anymore. Mm. So, you know, pros and cons. Similarly, Johns would do a profile update of the Toy Man over in Action Comics 865, revealing that all the various Toy Man were at one time or another merely robots built by the original Winslow Shot. It also very nicely vocalised the daytime ad nighttime characters theorem, popular online, which states that some characters are bright daytime heroes like Superman and his family, while others are dark nighttime characters like the Batman and his family, and that crossing those characters over really works. Shot tells Jimmy Olsen that the toy man which killed Alan Grant was not him. Adam Grant, sorry, not Alan Grant. Mm. As far as I know, the Adam Alan Grant, the writer of Batman and Judge Dredd, is still alive mm-hmm. and creator of the Boogeyman. At least I hope he is. I, I, I don't wish to put him in his grave before his time. That would not be good. Adam Grant, but instead a robot with faulty programming that developed a hatred for children. Whether this is a solution to the idea of toy man as murder or a slap in the face to the earlier creators is up for debate. The desire by Johns to push Toyman back into the daytime side of the equation is evident from the story, but Johns never got to use Toyman really after this, and all of it was wiped out by the new 52 reboot. There is a good scene in an early issue of New Krypton, where the Kryptonians are gathering up all of Superman's villains and throwing them into the Phantom Zone. Toyman's terrified reaction as he is dragged off, screaming, I don't belong there! is a great little moment. Another noteworthy issue for around this time is the standalone Superman 666, an extremely entertaining imaginary story featuring Superman cutting loose in his dreams, but also exploring thematic elements about Superman's relationship to Earth, which were important in Camelot Falls. 
I was also a fan of James Robinson's very fun Atlas story, which, considering it is primarily a brawl for four issues, is a blast to read. Crypto's great in there as well. Jeff John's Brainiac story is another favourite, but I may be more prone since I like Brainiac so much. Personally, I enjoyed New Krypton as a story. I like following the various threads in the Return of the Triangle numbers. Nightwing and Flamebird were fairly lame, but I like the other characters quite a bit. I didn't mind selling it, because I don't think I would read it again, but I'm very glad that I did buy it and read it, because I had a lot of fun doing so. Well, I bought that off a loop. Did you? Yeah, we enjoyed that. It was far too long. Yes. And very, very padded. Mm. But the actual thrust of the story was was quite good. Just very, very decompressed. You guys know that I was a Smallville fan from day one, so I won't go into that other here, other than to say that anyone who thinks that Smallville did anything negative to the comics needs to re-examine the first paragraph of this email, as it was heavy doses of Superman the movie stuff which dragged the comics down. I won't discuss Superman Returns here. I'm still a bit sore about that movie. Perhaps more frustrating than Smallville? Perhaps? Give me a break. <laughs> that was funny. Can't wait to hear the final instalment. Keep up the good work, Luke. P.S. Paul Dini and J.H. Williams III's run on Detective Comics was fantastic. They did a great story involving the terrible trio, amazingly enough. Yes, they did. Okay. Excellent run on... Um, on whatever comic that was that Luke said it was a run on Detective, yeah, Detective Comics. <laughs> Our next email is from Rob Stubbs, which is Superman Through the Ages Part 7. Again. So we've got lots of Part 7 emails this day. Not to day. be confused with Superman Part 7. Or Ultraman Part really. 7. There is no salutation. There is not. So we will make one up. Hey, Rob. Hey, Rob. It is near the end of your awesome Superman coverage, Masters Leyland and Leyland. Well, technically for you, it has been over for a while. But I have the last part open in my web browser, and I am both saddened and gladdened by this event. I'm sad that it's over, because this was really good. Not that I say your other short material isn't good as well. I'm glad that you are moving on to other material, because I enjoy both your perspective on comics, some of which I've read and others that I haven't. Action 765 was an interesting issue which I've never read until your coverage of it. I say interesting in that it's really more of an issue about the Joker versus Lex Luthor with the minions, abused females, fighting each other as well than being an issue about Superman. You do have Lois Lane Kent acting completely out of character towards her husband and Clark Kent being sick which also seems to be affecting Lois as well. But these are subplots, not the main story. I'm not fond of Kano's penciling but then I'm not really a big fan of this decades art style influenced by manga. It's not even that Superman and Clark Kent are both drawn as this big blocky sort of guy, as I can understand that, but the weirdly drawn faces and expressions are out of proportion, and everyone seems to have a head that is too big. One of the best moments in the story is when the Joker and Lex Luthor started talking shop, which ends when the Joker squirts acid or whatever it was at Luthor. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> I liked that. Superman 183 is better written and better drawn story overall, despite being a setup for another story. I like Ed McGuinness's pencils much better than Cano's for whatever reason. I think there are some great character moments from Lois's in a monologue where she's musing that it's Clark's presence that made her realise there was more to life than the job, to the telepathic link exchange between Luther and Superman going on at the same time they are both talking, to the bit where Clark is packing up his things after being fired. All-Star Superman number whatever, number four, wasn't it? Yes. Is something I haven't read, even though I've watched the movie before your coverage of it. I lean more towards your feelings about Grant Morrison's writing Andrew than Michael as a general rule, so I was pleasantly surprised by the entire limited issue run of All-Star Superman being good. I think if they kept Morrison from the big massive universe-changing event stories, which he wants to do, I would like his work a lot better, which this work illustrates. The parts of the story I like the best were when Jimmy kills the story because he doesn't want to hurt his friend's reputation and the relationship between him and his girlfriend Lucy. I could have done without an appearance of cross-dressing Jimmy, however. I agree, the laser death beam eyes not operating that slowly, but there are tons of comic books, movies, books and television precedents you can fall back on. Also, we can look at the idea that Superman has to use his powers that way, needs to be looking straight at the target, meaning he can't just shift his eyes 
eyes, but also has to turn his head, which would make it slower. Yeah, well, I was thinking about All-Star Superman the other day. Yeah. In relation to his, his action comics run. Mm. Which, let's be honest, the reaction to his action run has been mixed. Yeah. Even from Morrison acolytes such as yourself. Mm-hmm. It's fair to say that this, this hasn't perhaps been his most crowd-pleasing storyline. And I came to um, a thought that All-Star Superman works because they basically said, here, Grant, here's 12 issues. You go off over there in this little corner of the world, write your own Superman story. It has no impact on the other Superman stories, no impact on the mainstream Superman books, what's going on at the minute. It's your little 12 issues on Superman. So go over there and be like a nice boy and play nicely with Frank Quitley. Okay. And Grant went, oh, aye, that's a great idea. Oh, so I'm not tied into regular continuity, so I can do what I want, like. Aye, you <coughs> yes, you can, Grant. And thus, we ended up with All-Star Superman, which was great. But what he really said was when he went to it was, you know what, I can tie this into my uh, old JLA run. I know that if you want to, it does tie you into can it. tie it into the Morrissey-verse. Which yeah. is not to be confused with the singer from the Smiths. But if I know that you can do that. But if you don't want to do that... Yeah, it works fine on its own. All-Star Superman works on its own. Mm-hmm. Which is one of its great strengths. Yeah. I did have a thought as well. That maybe that's why For Tomorrow, the turgid Brian Azzarello, Jim Lee arc, right. isn't as well regarded. If that had been a 12-issue miniseries off on its own somewhere, maybe we wouldn't hate it quite as much. I've never read it. You don't want to. Well, you're the only person I know who doesn't like it. Everyone else thinks it's great. Who are these everyone else? I don't know, but... Because I wish to speak to them. It's in all these best-of lists that I've seen. It's, it, no, 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 no. For tomorrow isn't. I've seen it on them. Really? Some of them, yeah. I've seen loads of... Brian Azzarello's For Tomorrow is on the top ten list of best Superman stories ever. On one of them I might have read one time. It's cack. I've never read it. Do you know, in my head, do you know the way that went down? Go on. They approached Brian Azzarello. Right. Big success with 100 Bullets. Yeah. Big Vertigo writer. Yeah. They're in that era where they're thinking, let's throw indie creators at mainstream superheroes. Marvel was doing it as well. Right. It's a great success. So, well... I say great success. Tangled Web became a bit of an indie wank fest. But anyway, so they throw Brian Azzarello a bone and say, you can write Superman. And Brian Azzarello goes, I don't want to write Superman. And they say, you can do what you want with the character, which is always a mistake in my opinion, but whatever. So Brian Azzarello says, oh, aye, that's a great idea, even though he's not Scottish. I turn into Grant Morrison. Yeah, even though he's not Scottish. Yeah. This is what he said. Right. And then the script came in. Yeah. And DC Editorial went, these are crap! Let's Even though they're not Scottish. Uh, and they said, what, what are we going to do? We've signed up for 12 issues of this drivel. And then somebody said, how about we experiment? And whoever was in charge at that point, maybe Didio, I don't know, said, I'm intrigued! <laughs> Tell me! God, that hurt, I'm not doing that again. And they said, what about Jim Lee, big success with Batman Hush, Let's put him on this and see if people will buy any old filth just because Jim Lee draws it. And Dan Didier, or whoever was in charge at that point, went, that is a genius idea. And if we put it in the regular Superman book, the diehard Superman fans will have to buy it because they'll have a big gap in their collection otherwise. I am recommending you for a raise, Matt Idelson. 
and Matt Adelson goes, oh, great, even though he's not Scottish. Does that theory hold water? It, it sounds like it. Yeah. It sounds so plausible. It but does. that's probably not how it, it worked out. Reprinted several times in trade paperback, absolute hardbacks and deluxe edition. Read for tomorrow. Okay. I encourage you to read it yeah. as a cure for insomnia. <laughs> uh, we're not covering it on the show because I thought That's it was all. awful. You said that about Civil War? Yes, but we're going to do Civil War now. But I, I do, I would love to hear what you thought of it. Okay. Because well, last time we did this, we ended up with Grounded. Yeah. Which ended up being some of my favourite shows we've ever done Superman Grounded. But anyway, we have moved away from Rob's email discussing the, the turgidness that is the For Tomorrow. And uh, dear listener, lovely listener, if you're out there and you liked For Tomorrow, please write in and tell me why I'm wrong. Because I don't like anything better than being told I'm wrong. <laughs> it happens so often that I've just become used to it. Uh, yes, Rob's email continues. Action 775 is the big event issue, which I actually have read before unlike the three other issues you talked about, and I've also seen the animated feature. Again, I'm not liking the art, this time done by Dunmank and Omanke and Lieber Major. I just realised those women walking their dogs are the same people who had their poodles eaten by the Joker's hyenas. Yes, they were, which was fun. The issue is ultimately about ideas of one side assuming power makes what you do right if you use that power against really, really bad people versus restraint in power to doing what is necessary and no more even though bad people can go out and still do bad things. The movie does a better job of setting up this dynamic, in my view. Let me go into the things I like. I like the fact Luther as president is, I don't really care who they're killing off in other countries, but look at this power reading from this one guy. He may be stronger than Superman. Of course, if they attack Americans, we'll turn them into cat food, but issue a press release deploring violence in all forms to the general public. I like the fact that Superman is talking with people in his life, such as Jonathan Kent, John Henry Irons and Lois, about how much he is troubled by the public, including kids, believing killing is cool and the end justifies the means. I like the fact that he is willing to let them take the first blows against him to build up a point where they have seemingly pushed him over the edge. I liked how Superman has learned from his encounters with them to set this all up, where they provide him with a worldwide audience due to their self-promotion. I like the mocking little moment of, oh, Chester, oh, come, come now. I thought your leader types were supposed to be the smart ones. I can say that, you know, because I'm a leader myself. Yeah, I like that line. I thought that line was quite funny from Mm. Superman, where he's basically turning Chester's um, casual racism back on himself. Yeah. I did like that bit. I didn't like how muddled the message was, where you guys thought he was comparing the philosophies and failed to make arguments for the belief Superman stands for versus what Manchester Black's team stood for. I understood that he was making the argument by showing the world what they said they wanted by appearing to be just like Black in ruthless destruction, horrifying even Black himself. It was that that lost a little clarity in translation, in the reveal that no one was actually dead. It fails to clarify the message of Superman's much harder path of restraint versus the ends justify the means, which is easy for the powerful such as Black's team, but horrifying to see in action. Of course, I could be totally wrong about my perspective being the one Joe Kelly was trying to achieve. Um, yeah, well, I said last week I can barely muster up any more enthusiasm for Action 775. What has interested me, no one's emailed in to defend it. Yeah. Mike Bailey emailed in and went, yeah, it's, it's kind of good and kind of not. Which is no rousing defence, no. I don't think. And then Rob's just been very same. Yeah, this bit was kind of good and kind of not. Steve Lacey said he was going to email in and tell us why we were wrong about it. But didn't. But he hasn't done yet. But I want to read... Come on, people. If you think Action Comics 775 was the greatest thing since bread came sliced, let us know. I've told you before, I like nothing better than being told I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, if I gained fantastic powers... Rob continues, I would neither adopt black 
Black or Superman's philosophies, but would be a villain in the mould of the Flash's rogues gallery, only much subtler, and I wouldn't be caught or be so flashy. P.S. I'm totally kidding, of course, which is why you should see a bright flash any second, as I use my superpowers to erase the fact that I am a supervillain from your mind. Who's this email off? Um, some guy. He's just this guy, you know? Yeah. Zephard. Um... P.P.S. Apparently the cloud bats are blocking the flash of light, so I'll offer you this one tiny chance of gaining superpowers. Not quite as cool as mine, with only a 2% chance that you will explode into teeny tiny bits. P.S.S.S. I thought it was P.P.P.S. Am I missing, yeah. mixing my peas up? Yeah, I don't know. I remain your good friend from the former British colonies, unless, of course, my time machine has once again started sending emails to that world where New York is still called New Amsterdam. <laughs> R.L. stops. <laughs> Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Well, thank you very much, Rob. You know, if I got superpowers, yeah. I wouldn't be a hero or a villain. Would you know? What would you do? I, I just live my normal life, but I'd have powers, right? Say, if I could fly, well, yeah. I just can fly to school. If super fast, run super fast to school. Fair enough. Invincibility, um, can't get hit, injured by being hit by a car. Our next email is just called Doom. It's from David Bland. Hi, guys. Just listened to the Happy Birthday Superman finale, which he enjoyed. Yeah. We thank you for that, David. But I was wondering, how long would it take for people to get used to the way Doom runs the world after he conquers it? Hey, kids, this summer we're going to Doomland. Welcome to the Doom Show, starring Doom. If people actually talk like this, I would be very confused. Thanks for another great episode. Now go review Civil War, jokingly David Bland. David! It's coming, okay? It's on its way. You have wore me down. You're just procrastinating. With with your... Go on. You know you want to. Go on. So we're going to do it, all right? We've got um, the No More Superheroes season coming up where we're going to review a bunch of books that don't have superheroes in them. Which she decided to do because she didn't want to do Civil War. Yeah, and then... It's, it's, it's graduated, David. Lovely David. It has graduated in the book to actually be in the book. It's not now on a list of ideas. It actually has a date next to it when that episode would go live. Mm-hmm. It may not be the actual date that it happens because we may drop that one now. Will it? I don't know. Having now read Constantine 1, I'm not that interested in talking about it. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But it's in the book with an actual date next to it, which normally means it'll get covered. Normally. Wolverine, the Wolverine miniseries by Chris Clomer and Frank Miller has had a date next to it four times and we still haven't done it. Yep. But it's closer now than it has ever been before. Mm-hmm. So look forward to that, young David. Our next email is from Charlie Niemeyer asking me to play his Charlie's Geekcast promo. So if you've been listening to this show for a good amount of time, I'm assuming you will now be able to guess which promo will be coming up when we play the promos. Go on. Charlie's Geekcast. So we're happy to do that for you, Charlie. Our next email is from Tom Panarese. Tom Panarese says, My reaction to the Robin reveal in Dark Knight Rises. It wasn't pretty. And he sent us a link to a picture of Carrie covered in blood. (laughs) Have you not seen that? (laughs) That's funny. That That made me laugh and cough. So thank you for that. Our next email is comes from Professor Allen, but I believe it came via Latveria. Yeah. Leyland. That's very formal, isn't it? 
The, the, the tagline was Doom versus Super What's-His-Name, just in case I forgot to mention it. Ultraman. Yes, versus Ultraman. It has come to my attention that your attitude towards President for Life, Victor I of the Grand Republic of Latveria, whom you discussed in your Happy Birthday Superman finale episode, may have fallen below the level of respect and admiration required by Latverian podcasting authorities. Referring to the master plan of doom in this issue as CAC, for example, is problematic. <laughs> oh dear. I do hope Doom wasn't offended by us calling his plan CAC. We must have uh, been in contravenance of some Latverian law. I would recommend, continues Professor Allen, a full apology to Doom, although a promise of dedicating your podcast to a 44-episode coverage of the Doom 2099 documentary series may be considered a sufficient offering to ameliorate your guilt. <laughs> well, we're terribly sorry, Doom, if I was referring to your plan as CAC offended thee. <laughs> it was a bit, though. It was it. Remember, Doom knows where you live. And we can hear him coming, so he'll do, it. <coughs> he'll do a soliloquy on the way down. Well, I am proceeding to the <laughs> Nayland household, walking down the street. For Doom does not walk. Doom strides purposefully. Doom is approaching the front door of the Leyland house. Doom has just tripped over a cat. Doom will eliminate all cats when Doom is in charge. Doom is knocking at the door. Don't answer it. You don't know who it'll be. Doom is growing impatient. <laughs> That that was from Alan Middleton, Associate Professor of Latverian Studies, University of Doomstadt. (laughs) Oh, that did make me laugh. They have doom levels. (laughs) What do you mean? Well, well, we have A-levels, they have doom levels. Instead of GCSEs, they have (laughs) D-O-O-M's. Oh, dear God, that would be funny. Our final email tonight is from Chris Keith, and it's called Superman in the 80s. Greetings, mighty Layla, as we've said before, we have done the impossible and that makes us mighty. Mm. I'm greatly enjoying the coverage of Superman's birthday, yes, even the 60s and 70s. What was wrong with the 60s and 70s, Chris? Nothing wrong with the 60s and 70s? Well, maybe flowed trousers were a bit of a mistake, kipper ties, nobody will see them again. Well, I do think that those issues should have been sponsored by Velveeta. <laughs> I will say that your courage makes them interesting. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, on to the 80s, as this era was my introduction, after the Superman from the 30s to the 70s book, of course, to the comic version of the character. In the early 80s, I actually bought quite a few of these at my local newsstand. Of the books you covered, this show was the first instance that I actually owned paper copies of all four issues. Action 544 and Superman 400 were purchased in the 90s for about a dollar apiece, so it wasn't a large investment. I'm glad I didn't pay a lot, because I closed these books thinking... I should have liked these better. Even rereading them this week in anticipation of the show, I'm still bothered by the reality. These books were not characteristic of their time. I will try to explain. Andy, you mentioned it a bit with regard to the art. Perez on Titans, Byrne on X-Men, even Clermont on X-Men. In addition to the glorious art, the concepts introduced were different from the usual comic book fur. Death of the Phoenix, hell, death of Proteus the year before. Terror's betrayal, even that freaky-deaky relationship between Colossus and Kitty Pride. How old was he supposed to be anyway? Batman at the time would at least have darker elements. Then here we have Superman. Yes, it's a new costume for Luther, but I felt and still feel that it was the same old Luther. Yes, the writer tried to 80s it up, but it still felt like he was trying too hard, and in some cases not hard enough. As for Brainiac, 
Had the writer ever even seen a computer? The computer speak was painful, even for the 80s. I never felt that this book lived up to the cover hype. That was, of course, the problem with the 80s, pre-crisis. Either cool covers with meh stories, or stupid covers. Everyone has superpowers but Clark. Yeah, because that looks original in 1963, but not so much in 1983. The stories just never seemed to go anywhere pre-crisis. One or two issue stories, and back to the status quo. When the biggest story is Lana having dinner with Vartox, you have an era that he's lacking. I know that wasn't the only thing that happened, but still. Not to say that everything was just terrible. It just isn't memorable. Even on a reread, the only thing that I enjoyed of this era was Gil Kane's art. I freaking love Gil Kane on Superman. I was on the only, and that was the only thing that kept me buying pre-crisis. On to post-crisis. Andy, thank you for mentioning the fact that no one else seems to acknowledge. John Byrne was not that revolutionary. His concept were recycled to a degree. He didn't really create any new villains, Bloodsport, Skyhook and Silver Banshee are the ones that spring to mind, that were world beaters. His best stories rehashed old concept or characters. The two issues that you cited could easily be Silver Age. Well, Laurie was Silver Age, and I'm fairly sure that the Superman's powers go crazy story had to come up in a red K story in the 60s at some point. Don't get me wrong, I love John Byrne. I just think that visionary does not apply to treatment of this character. And I do object to this era being titled the Burn Era. He was there for two years out of twenty. Was he influential? Yes, and he'll tell you that, gladly. Was he the glue that kept the concepts together? I guess. I don't think that this era really solidified until around Panic in the Sky, but that's just me. And I would say that Roger Stern and Dan Jurgens did more for Superman than John Byrne ever did. This statement isn't a slap of the man, but with the exception of the last story with the pocket universe, Byrne's stories were one and done, with little lasting consequence. It took Stern and Jurgens to unbitch Lois, to expand on their relationship, and to expand Superman's relationship with the DC universe. Uh, I don't disagree with any of that. In rereading them for this, Burns stuff doesn't seem in any way revolutionary. Mm. In fact, it seems very Silver Edge in a lot of ways. And the stuff that he did update now looks horribly dated now. Lois's hair and the big collared pantsuits that she would wear and the references yeah, references to Don Johnson and all that stuff. So yeah, I don't I don't disagree with that. It was it was interesting at the time. Mm. I don't think his Superman work is, is my favourite of Burns' work. His art's fantastic, but story-wise it, it does feel very safe. Yeah. Not perhaps as risky as it could have been. But, you know, maybe that's what DC wanted. Uh, okay, enough rambling this time, concludes Chris. As I really want to see what you have to say about the 90s. Thank you for continued excellent... Well, you're very welcome, Chris. I'll, I'll cut that off because self-aggrandising's a bit... Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Guess what promo we're going to play, Michael? Are we going to put Charlie Niemeyer in? I think we should plug Charlie Niemeyer in here. Yeah. See, does he ask so nicely? He did. And we went on that entire tangent about him last yeah. week or the week before. I forget, because I can't speak. Uh, I will you be. You can't speak, so that's why you forget. Yeah, I forget, because, you know. I've got man flu. Right. Man flu has been statistically proven to be a very virulent strain of flu. It's called man flu, because if anyone else gets it, women, creatures, dogs, cats, whatever, they will die. <laughs> man flu is very, very... St- In fact, yeah. it only attacks the hardiest of masculine men. Does it? Yeah. It, it orbits... The, the flu virus <laughs> orbits Earth, like the JLA satellite at roughly 33,000, however many miles away it was. Right. And it picks its targets very selectively. It's not a random occurrence. Oh, no. It's a computer virus. Yeah, it looks at testosterone levels and how manly a man you are. And then it zeroes in on you like a Thunderdome thing. Right. You versus this particularly nasty 
strain of man flu and I'm you know as the manliest man I know I am fighting this thing off <coughs> we'll be right back greetings podcast listener do you like ready to form Voltron or maybe how about I am Batman or this is a job for Superman do you remember or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots, transform! <laughs> or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or... For the honor of Grayskull! Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello, I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's GeekCast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully... We is back from our extended break. Wasn't that extended tonight, really, was it? Hello, lovelies. Well, we're continuing to look at some of our favourite non-superhero comic book stories. Today's pick from me, however, is neither a comic I read as a kid, nor a book I have warm, fuzzy, nostalgic feelings for. Rather, a comic series I discovered completely by accident in, of all places, Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. Do you know, as an aside... Yeah. We were there this day, as we record this, one year ago. What? Yeah. I'm not miserable about that in any way. No. Will we be there today, next year? Possibly not next year, no. no. <laughs> it costs a lot of money, dude. <laughs> Maybe a couple of years. Uh, one of the great things about Marvel's superhero island, located in Universal's Islands of Adventure theme park, is the presence of a rather nifty, if expensive, comic book store. In said store, I was looking through the essential volumes and graphic novels when Essential Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos caught my eye. Whilst I'd always been a fan of Nick Fury, who is my kind of rugged, two-fisted, no-nonsense kind of guy, it was the Steranko James Bondian Nick Fury I related to, not the Leatherneck World War II veteran. But as I skimmed through the pages, numerous panels and stories caught my eye. For one, Fury seems to be caught up in real-life events, not made-up scenarios, even meeting up with real-life figures like Rommel and getting involved in battles at Tobruk. The dynamic art, glorious in monochrome by Jack Kirby and Dick Ers, was also quite interesting. I plopped over my 20 books and took home my purchase. Granted, it would have to wait until I actually got home, some 5,000 miles away, before I could read it, but when I did, I tore through these early stories. Sergeant Fury is a totally different book to the other Lee Kirby comics of the time. Whilst the Howlers are every bit as heroic and irreverent as Ben Grimm and Daredevil, their exploits, despite featuring the requisite during-do excitement and really wild things, are rooted much more in reality than even the most grounded of superhero strips. Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, so named due to their fearsome battle cry of as they dived into battle are a ragtag group of heroic US Army soldiers stationed in the UK during the early 40s. The battle cries they dive into Hazard County. <laughs> as they drive the Dodge Charger over Russian tanks. Yeah. That would be awesome. The Dukes of Hazard in World War II. Them howlers, them 
Nicholas. That would be brilliant. The leader, Nicholas Joseph Fury, was a product of the Depression, a no-hoper kid who hung around in pool halls and learned to hustle at an early age. When one of his best friends was killed in the attack on Pearl Harbor, Fury enlisted, and after training at Fort Dix, was assigned command of the Howlers. And what a diverse group they were. Timothy Dum Dum Dugan, a derby hat-wearing Irish-American. Isidore Izzy Cohen, a master mechanic from Brooklyn. Dino Minnelli, a handsome Italian-American who was also a Hollywood star back in the States, clearly based on Dean Martin. Rebel Ralston, an ex-jockey from Kentucky, and with a pronounced southern accent. Junior Juniper, the Ivy Leaguer and eager beaver of the group. And Gabriel Jones, a trumpet-playing jazzman, who was Jack and Stan's first pre-Black Panther, Black Hero. Whilst Gabe's inclusion was anachronistic, real desegregation in the US Army would not be until 1948, it hardly mattered to Lee and Kirby. And this was but one of the many subversive tolerance messages Lee and Kirby would sneak into the strip. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. But Andrew, in the billion dollar grossing move of the Avengers, or Avengers Assemble if you live over here, because we're too stupid to know the difference between a a bowler hat clad British super spy and his leather spandex clad agent partner in that TV show from 40 years ago in that TV show from 45 years ago yes versus a motley crew of heroic super doers all clad in nice costumes we're too stupid to know the difference of course Fury is a colonel and more importantly he heads up the super secret government organisation SHIELD and is not a veteran of World War 2 well, lovely listener, you are correct in this. The movie Nick Fury is based upon the ultimate version of Nick Fury. Who is based upon Sam Jackson. Who is based upon Sam Jackson, yes. An alternative reality take on the Marvel Universe. And a clear and early example of the sucking up to Hollywood that Marvel has done over the past ten years. Drawn, as Michael just pointed out, to look like actor Samuel L. Jackson. Who, instead of suing Marvel, ended up playing him in the film. A more faithful version of the 60s Nick Fury appeared in a TV movie where he was played by David Hasselhoff. But it was not as successful, although I kind of thought Hasselhoff quite looked the part. Mm. Which is not to say that the movie was any good. He just looked the part. He did kind of look the part. The Howling Commandos appeared, kind of, in Captain America the First Avenger, where they're never named as such, but I clearly heard to say Wahoo at one point. I say kind of, as whilst Dum Dum Dugan is present, played by Neil McDonough, as is Gabe Jones, played by actor Derek Luke, and later Howlers Jim Marita and French Resistance fighter Jacques Dernier, UK Howler Percy Pinkerton was substituted for James Montgomery Falsworth. In the comics, Falsworth was a member of World War II action team The Invaders, as UK superhero Union Jack, and seemed an odd change unless Marvel is setting up a Union Jack film or TV project, which I'd be all for, because mm. I quite like Union Jack. As an aside, Fury did make a belated attempt to grab the youth of the UK by the throat in a weekly Marvel UK comic entitled, aptly enough, Fury in 1977. Launched as a response to the well-selling Warlord and Battle Picture Weekly, Fury, despite boasting some excellent rarely seen covers by Carlos Esquera and featuring support from Captain Savage in his Leathernet Raiders on backup duties, would only last 25 issues. Battle and Warlord were incredibly violent papers for the time, and needless to say, were very popular with boys in playgrounds across the land. With 2000 AD, also very violent and iconoclastic just a few months away, the adventures of Fury and Savage probably seemed quite dated and quaint to the kids of the day. It probably didn't help that no one in the 70s in England said, What ho? Meaning that the identification factor was quite low. The issue I've picked for tonight was the first jaw-dropper of the collection. And when a nearly 50-year-old comic can still make you go, wow, it's a damned impressive book. 
Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos issue 4, Lord Haha's Last Laugh, came out on September 3rd, 1963, cover dated November 1963. Written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Giorgio Russo's and lettered by Sam Rosen. Cover shows Fury and the Howlers bursting through a window, rudely interrupting a meeting of the German SS, as the cover copy informs us that, in this great action tale, the Howlers crash into the heart of Berlin! It's an impressive and striking cover by Kirby and Saul Brodsky. Although, some of the perspective seems a bit off, doesn't it? Yeah. It does look like uh, Nick Fury would be a lot closer to us if he was that size in relation to the other people on the cover. It's a good cover, though. I quite like it. Mm. A very dirty dozen. In fact, the old strip's very dirty dozen. I find it funny how the German guys aren't even bothering to put down their... Uh mugs of beer. Well, it must be Oktoberfest, yeah? Yeah. Big Fury has interrupted Oktoberfest. That just is not on. Uncouth man. Kill him. Back to Blue Harbor. Back to Blue Harbor, yeah? The story for this one ran thus. In London, the Howlers are caught smack dab in the middle of a surprise Luftwaffe air raid attack on the nation's capital. As the bombs fall and devastation takes hold, Fury vows vengeance, but his tirade is interrupted by the pleas of a young, attractive Red Cross nurse named Pamela Hawley. She is struggling to assist a wounded boy amidst the terror, and Fury hoists the boy on his shoulders and carries him to the air raid shelters. As the bombings continue, Fury is impressed by Harley's fighting spirit and never-say-die attitude, but fears a classy English girl will never be interested in a roughneck like him. He leaves as soon as the bombings subside, in no small part thanks to the intervention of the RAF, and returns to the camp to locate the Howlers. He does so, but is disgusted that they are listening to the propaganda-laden musings of Lord Haha, a plummy-voiced German broadcast which tells of the Nazis' spectacular victory over London this day. Lord Haha is in Berlin, and the broadcasts serve two purposes. To spread the word of victory to the masses, and disillusion the Allied forces. But Haha also tries to lure in soldiers and commandos to Berlin, where they can be executed. The next day, Fury receives a telegram from an English lord to afternoon tea. Because there's nothing that says you're in England more than there being an English lord and afternoon tea. Yes. And Fury's CEO, Happy Sam Sawyer, orders Fury to attend. Fury is teased by the commandos for sprucing up his appearance, but he's glad he did when he's escorted to the home of Peter Hawley, his wife Evelyn, and his daughter, Pamela. After Pamela sings Fury's praises, Lord Hawley has convinced Fury is the man for the job. A job that will take the Howlers into Berlin to rescue Hawley's son, Percy, who it turns out is Lord Haha. The Hawleys are convinced Percy has been coerced into producing those broadcasts, and Sawyer volunteers the Howlers for the mission. The next day, the Howlers are parachuted to the outskirts of Berlin, where they meet up with their contact, a circus performer, and under cover of the travelling circus, they make it into the heart of Berlin and locate Lord Haha. An intense battle follows as the Howlers try to extricate Haha, but Junior's quick thinking allows them a brief respite, and the Howlers make a break for a safe house where they await pickup by a sub. Fury is disgusted as how a wonderful young woman with such fighting spirit as Pamela can have a snivelling turncoat as Percy as a brother, but Percy is unaffected and says he simply believes in the Third Reich. The next day, a passing German panzer patrol happens upon the Howlers and is alerted to their presence when Percy makes a break for it. He fires a weapon to alert the passing Germans, but is shot dead for his troubles. The Howlers are outnumbered and outgunned, but continue to battle on, preparing to go down fighting. And as the gunfire becomes more intense, Junior Juniper takes a fatal bullet. 
With no time to mourn, the Howlers continue to fight, but are saved at the last minute by the arriving sub, which makes short work of the German patrol. Back in London, the Howlers mourn their loss and wonder who else won't make it out alive. Back at the Hawley estate, Fury finds he can't tell Pamela the truth. He says that Percy died a hero, and the duo take the first tentative steps towards a relationship. It was good, that one. It was okay. Only okay. I thoroughly enjoyed this one. Plays like a more realistic version of the A-Team, doesn't it? That's how it comes across. Or at least to me, anyway. Uh, Page one is a great splash page. Uh, showing Fury and the Howlers having a wander around London, taking in the sights when the Ur Raid takes place. Even here, in a scene that could lead to devastation and death, Kirby manages to slide in a visual gag as Dino Manelli is seen combing his hair. It's quite wonky, though. Why is it wonky? Well, it's early Kirby, where every, everyone and everything is wonky. I don't... This isn't early Kirby. He was drawing comics in World War Two, dude, so he's 20-odd years into his career here. It's, he's not become Jack Kirby yet. No, it's still his early... Kirby it's his early work. Marvel work. This is mid-period Kirby. Yeah. He's not become King Kirby, which wouldn't happen until Fantastic Four 40-ish. But his work's not as strong as his other stuff. It's just as powerful, mm. but not as strong. I like that cover. I like the splash page, sorry. I like that Gabe's always carrying his horn with him. Yeah. I found it was, was quite amusing. Uh, page two. Stan shows his understanding of the situation in London and the UK in general in World War II by having the Howlers caught in the Ur Raid that was commonplace. Stan's wife is British, so one wonders if he consulted with her or if this was Kirby's edition. But the horror of a purely arbitrary attack that leads to a small child being wounded is offset by the wonderful panel of Fury cursing the Luftwaffe for this attack and vowing vengeance. Interestingly, Fury puts all this aside to aid the wounded child, showing a curring side to Fury that has only previously been hinted at. The art's nice and scratchy throughout. Did you not like it? I'm not a big fan of, well, mid-period Kirby. Mid-period Kirby. Because this is just as scratchy, but in a different way, as the, the issue we're going to cover in a minute. Which mm. I thought, so I found it quite interesting you don't like this, but do like that. But you know, we'll get there. Yeah. Page three. Again, Fury is seen to respect the chain of command as Pamela orders him to stay put rather than risk his life pointlessly. His realisation that she is as patriotic and determined as he is is a poignant moment. In one simple scene, the reader is privy to a Fury that understands that no matter how beleaguered the country may be, surrender is not an option. Arguably, it's here that Fury falls for Howler, as he sees that she is not just pretty, but a fighter. Just the kind of girl for Nick Fury. Which makes the ultimate ending quite tragic. Mm. And I don't just mean this issue. Okay. Stan does a fine job with his portrayal of Howley, so it's a shame that his dialogue for the RAF is cliche overlord. We've jolly well beaten the blighters! Indeed. What hell, Ginger? With all that said, I didn't think there were too many British stereotypes in this, actually. No, because Percy Pinkerton's not shown up yet. Well, no, but uh, um, next to other com- American comics which set in Britain or... or yeah. That, there's not as many British stereotypes in there. Considering the time this was written, yeah. it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Mm. So we will give him credit where it's due that it doesn't read as painfully embarrassing. No. Uh, apart from... <laughs> we've jolly well beaten the blighters! Yeah. Oh dear. It was Jonathan Quayle Higgins in that Spitfire. <laughs> 
page six, Lord Ha Ha is based upon real events. In real life, Lord Ha Ha, a.k.a. William Joyce, was a notorious broadcaster of Nazi propaganda to the UK during World War II. His announcement to Germany calling, Germany calling, was a familiar sound across the airways, introducing threats and misinformation that he broadcast from his Hamburg base. In 1945, Joyce was captured and returned to Britain, where he was later hanged for treason. And this isn't the only issue that Stan would write around real-life events. Mm. So I was quite impressed that he did that as much as he did. Um, Percy is a smug get, though, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Jack Kirby really does draw him as somebody with an eminently punchable face. Mm. Uh, page 7, the Howler's reaction to Fury being invited to afternoon tea is hysterical. Sarge, you are, he's got a date, tra-la-la, and they're dancing around with each other. And then they start helping him get dressed in shiny shoes. Yeah. Which I thought was quite funny. And I like that he has a shave, which means that he's clean shaven, for the, I think, for the first time since the comic started. For about two pages. Yeah, and then it grows back rather quickly. I do like when he's holding his tea, and he's got his little pinky finger. I like his comments about swallowing the cup. <laughs> it was quite funny. I wonder how much that was based on real life. Uh, pages eight and nine... There's a, an excellent running gag where Fury is uncomfortable in dress uniform. But once again, we see a huge coincidence play a part in the plot. What are the odds that on the very day that Fury is caught in an air raid, he should just happen to meet up with the daughter of the man who has sent him a telegram? In fact, there are a few issues here. Firstly, why is Pamela still in her uniform? Surely she would get changed when she got home, unless she's only just got in. The more pressing matter is exactly who is Lord Hawley, that he can request a US Army sergeant be sent to Berlin to rescue his son. And Sam Sawyer agrees to it. And actually makes it a direct order, doesn't he? Yeah. He sends the howlers out, though. Does this guy pull some major strings or what? Maybe he's in Parliament. Well, yeah, that's a possibility. The, the, the Hawleys have to be connected in some way. Yeah. Uh, again, the seriousness of the situation is living with humour. Um, Fury's reaction to tea, which is quite amusing. Although, the next page, page 10, was a tad confusing. Sawyer makes it quite clear that this is an order, and when they get back from parachuting into Berlin, find the traitor, snatch him and return to England without arousing the attention of 100,000 stormtroopers, Sawyer says he's got a really tough job waiting for them. But here, Fury implies that he volunteered. Unless he just doesn't want the howlers to know. Maybe. That this, but that doesn't make any sense either, surely they'd go with him whether it was a mission or volunteered or what maybe you still want to see him all strong and tough after that date you don't want to say we were forced to do it I agreed <laughs> we were forced to do it while I drank tea out of a yeah. china cup <laughs> we're real men remember yes yes and that's why we have man flow yes because we're real men uh, page 11 the howlers meet their contact a circus performer who has a lion on the loose German police are searching for the lion and beautifully none of them speak German Mm. Rather, they all talk in that kind of Aloelo-esque German. <laughs> we must have gone! Yeah! I'm presuming that that is supposed to be German. Because there are later strips where Dina Manella, who is the only one of the group who can speak German, yeah. does dress in a German uniform to get them out of trouble and speaks German to get them past a, a group of patrols or whatever. And he speaks like that as well. Yeah. So I'm presuming that is just shorthand for German, but it is so comical. He must not escape, he must find him! Schnell! <laughs> Maybe they could just do the triangle things and say translated. Yeah, well, it's translated from the German. They didn't do that anyway. Maybe they didn't do that yet. Maybe they only started doing that later. Because it does have the effect that it does make the Germans rather comical. Yeah. When in every other respect, they're not. They are treated as serious adversaries. 
you're not you've not got comedy Germans in this apart from how they talk, mm. which is a bit a bit off. But all right, we'll we'll give them a pass. To be honest with you, um, the whole sequence with the uh, the lion is played for laughs, but it does offer up a decent reason for why the Howlers are able to get into Berlin, especially as they happy happily take out the police who are threatening Putsy the Lion. And in a truly hysterical scene on page 13, Dum Dum Dugan accidentally lights some dynamite and throws it at a German railroad gun. I do love when he does that. He just says, goodness gracious, I'm just a clumsy old Butterfingers. And he just threw it out and Fury's like... <sighs> he has a perfect aim throwing backwards. Yeah, looking. I thought that was brilliant. I do like Dum Dum Dugan in these stories. He's always banging on about his wife and his mother-in-law and how he's happy to be in the walk because he's not at home <laughs> with them. Which is quite cliched but very funny. Um, this is followed up with the Howlers dressed as circus performers clowning around in the big top. I think you can make a case that this Silver Age silliness was a bit out of place in such a serious story. But, you know, it does fit into the whole... It it works like an episode of the A-Team, but a bit more serious. Yeah. In that it's got some, some comedy in the middle of it. Fury telling the circus performer that no one who fights for freedom is ever alone was a nice little moment. And on page 14, Dino Minelli has to sweet-talk a Fraulein into giving them information they need. And it's another good comedy bit. I do like to think, again, like I say, that uh, Minelli spoke actual German and not this parody of German. Where he walks up to the... You mean a beautiful Fraulein like you with such big blue laughable eyes cannot do a little favour for a lonesome stormtrooper? And she's like, well, if you put it like that. And they've actually spelt lovable L U double F. Yeah. A B L E. Which. Oh dear God. Um, page 15, one of the things I have been impressed with reading Fury is that no concessions have been made to the comics code. The Howlers have been seen killing their enemy from opening fire on a crowd of soldiers at point blank range to Dum Dum hurling a grenade into a packed truck full of German soldiers. How Stan and Jack got this around the comics code, I've got no idea. But we're quite clearly told here that when the Howlers find out where Lord Haha is, they move into action in grim silence with the savagery of sharks. So they're not taking prisoners, I think is the, uh, the implication. And they do. Pages 16 through 17 are some of the most frenetic action scenes Lee Kirby have done in any comic up to this point, as the Howlers break into a Berlin safe house and take Lord Ha-Ha from under the SS noses. The action never lets up, and even the dialogue, humorous though it remains, takes on a much bleaker ur. Some interesting panels on pages 18 through 19. The bottom panel of page 18 has a balloon from Lord Ha-Ha pointing to the wrong place. And the dialogue in panels 1 and 2 of page 19 is left to explain how the Howlers dodge their pursuers as the art just seems to forget that they're on the run from two or three German army trucks. Don't they? Yeah. They just duck into a forest and they're gone. Fortunately, the dialogue explains that by ducking into the forest and taking a couple of left and right turns, they managed to lose the patrol. Mm. I didn't quite buy it. No. But, all right. I like the scene with the fix in the car and the chasing them. I just like that scene. All right. Well, the car's broke. Yeah. And uh, they've got to get it working before they can go anywhere. Because that's what I say. It's... Whilst the circus stuff in the middle didn't seem out of place, per se... Mm. It seemed a bit broad compared to everything else that's going on. But even with that, in that scene, as serious as it is, it's still light-hearted in the thing yeah, they're saying. the dialogue is still is still quite comedic, even though they know that they're in 
they're in trouble here. Mm. It's at that point they realise they may not be coming out of this one alive. Page 19, Stan actually gives the villain of the piece, Percy Hawley, motivation. The guy does not think he's a traitor or a fool. He believes in the Third Reich. Stan manages to put some moral ambiguity into the story with this. Whilst the Reich were reprehensible, Hawley doesn't see that. So he isn't just a cardboard cut-out bad guy. Remember, everyone is the hero of their own story. And uh, I did appreciate that Stan attempted to do that. He could have just left him as a cardboard cutout, couldn't he? Yeah. And he does attempt to inject some characterisation into it. The fight scene at the end is even more frenetic than the earlier one, with the Howlers believing they aren't making out of this alive, and even more determined than ever to take as many of the enemy with them as possible. And for Junior, this proves true. The sad and also great thing about his death is that it's just so sudden. He's alive in one panel and dead in the next. And the Howlers in the middle of a firefight have no time to mourn. They have to keep fighting. Even the ending is downbeat. With the Howlers realising that this is their lives, they're expendable. And Fury refuses to tell Pamela the truth at the end, leaving the the story on a very downbeat note. Mm. Which I quite liked. Well, I, I liked... I really liked how um, Paha just got shot off-panel instantly. Yeah. Just because... Well, I don't want to say if he deserved it or not, but... Of course he deserved it. He's a traitor. Oh, the okay, then. In real life, the guy was... He got brought home and hung. Yeah. So... But I do like how something he believed in was right so much, inevitably got him killed. Yeah, because the Germans don't kill I love that the, when the Germans kill him. Yeah. They don't know who he is. They just say, A madman runs to orders firing, so I will stop him. And he shoots him straight through the head. Good, good job, Eric. You got him with your first blast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's... Back to Oktoberfest. <laughs> See, on the one hand, that's what I mean about it. The juxtaposition between the comical dialogue and the fact they shot that guy dead. Yeah. Is, it's it's not jarring. I think it works really well, actually. For, yeah. for a comic, yeah. Of this time period well, as you, well. Yeah, and when it's targeted at kids as well. Yeah. So, although he does go to great lengths to try and give them characterisation, yeah. he never... Strays over the line of making them sympathetic. It's never either what, like, too comedic or too. Yeah, it's neither one way or the other. Yeah. He does do a good job of balancing it out quite well. Uh, I thought this was excellent. I really did. I thought this was an absolutely fantastic issue, blending an actual real life event, something Stan would do quite a lot in the series, with a large dollop of fictionalisation to create a story that's gripping and funny in equal measure. Fury's reaction to being invited to tea is very funny, but offset by his genuinely touching scenes with Pamela and the truly downbeat ending. Fury can't bring himself to tell the Hawleys the real story and instead lies to protect her. Amidst all this drama, though, a moment of Silver Age silliness as the Howlers encounter a lion from the circus and then go undercover as clowns for a short time in the middle of the story. That this works in the context of this story is a testament to its strength, not least the truly tragic ending where a Howler buys it with no fanfare or warning. The art is fantastic throughout, with Rousseau's adding a rough line to Kirby's pencils that suits the tale perfectly. Is this as in-depth or revealing as a modern-day Garth Ennis penned war comic? No, but that's not the point. That Stan and Jack were even creating a war comic that not only presented even the Nazis as people that thought they were in the right, whilst showing how wrong they were, was a remarkable feat. They never shy away from the consequences of war for the good guys either. In both the Ur Raid and the death of Junior, the horrors of the war on the innocent, the small child hurt at the beginning of the story, are shown straight up. A truly excellent issue in a hugely underrated series. 
I do like that it closed out with weapons of World War Two. Yeah, I like that. It shows all the different combat rifles that were used by the US, Russia, Japan, the British Empire, and Germany. Did Kirby do that? I presume so. I presume Kirby drew that. I quite like that. I thought that was quite good. Mm-hmm. I love that. I thought that was an excellent issue. Yeah. Do you have an opinion either way? Um, I enjoyed it. But Throw me essential over that. I, I don't like the marvelization of things, really. I mean, compared to what we're doing next, I prefer the Sergeant Rock. I'm not as down with the marvelization of it. But I thought it was good either way, really. Right, well, that was my pick. What's yours, Michael? Well, I stuck with the theme of what comics. And you George, do like your themes, don't you? I do, actually. It helps to choose what comics I'm doing. Fair enough. Um, and chose a Sergeant Rock story from Our Army at War. Sergeant Frank Rock was created as a prototype character by Robert Kaniger and Joe Kubert in GI Combat issue 68 in 1959, and was first known as The Rock. His rank as Sergeant was given in issue 82, and he made his first full appearance as Sergeant Rock in issue 83. In 1977, Our Army at War was retitled to Sergeant Rock, which ran until issues 422 in 1988. Several digests and specials were published along with a 21-issue run of reprints from 88 to 91. Rock fought in the infantry branch of the US Army in the European theatre during World War II and led the unit Easy Company. Creator Kaniger said in the letters columns that Rock could have belonged to the Big Red One, which was the first US infantry division which explained his appearance on the battlefields in Africa, Italy and Europe. Born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Rock worked in a steel mill before enlisting after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was sent to North Africa and was soon promoted as several of his superiors were killed. Rock fought until the end of the war, until he was killed by the very last enemy bullet fired on the very last day of the war. However, DC published a number of stories where Rock was incorporated into current DC titles, where he fought alongside Superman and the Suicide Squad. Rock was confirmed to have been killed by the last bullet in the backup strip in DC Legacies issue 4 in 2010. I chose tonight's issue because some time ago I borrowed a few Sergeant Rock comics off my granddad, and out of all the ones I read, this was the most memorable one. However, I did forget which issue it was, and after some research, I managed to find the issue, and thanks to Luke Giaconetta, he managed to send us a copy of this issue. Because we couldn't get to my mum's in time. We could not. To uh, to borrow it again. Sergeant Rock. It's not Sergeant Rock. It's Our Army at War issue 158. Because last week you didn't tell them what issue number it was. No. And <laughs> we did Invincible. I only noticed that when I listened back to it to make sure it was okay. And I was like, you didn't tell them it was issue 23 anywhere, dude. I didn't know it was. <laughs> well, it's several I found it in Sergeant Rock 404. Yeah, it did get reprinted in Sergeant Rock 404. And it's been reprinted in Showcase Sergeant Rock Volume 3 I think yeah Volume 2 or Volume 3 it's been reprinted in a lot of places so it is it is quite easy to get a hold of a copy but like you say Luke Giaconetti was the one who came to our rescue mm-hmm. in this particular instance so thank you very much Luke uh, the cover to this is uh, fantastic it's a marvellous, fine, fine Joe Kubert cover, with Rock taking over the vast majority of the cover in foreground close-up, the implication being that the soldier isn't actually frozen, but lying in wait for the German patrol, the believing Rock to be frozen, simply throw a grenade at him. The icicles hanging from Rock's face and helmet are particularly effective in demonstrating how cold it is. I do like that his eyeballs are looking behind him. Mm as he prepares to attack. It's an excellent cover, that. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic cover. 
Joe Cubert at his finest, I thought. Iron Major, Rock Sergeant. You're not telling us what you thought of the cover? Okay, I, I liked it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, you, you essentially summed it up, really. It is awesome. Iron Major, Rock Sergeant was written and edited by Robert Kaniger with art by Joe Cubert. Part 1. Rock is beaten and at the mercy of a German soldier, Iron Major, in the Forest of Forgotten Skulls. If Rock can kill the Major, then he can return to his troops and tell them that the raid on the Iron's power camp is a trap and save the life of 5,000 American troops. P-O-W. Oh, I know, I like saying power. <laughs> okay. It's less of a mouthful than prisoner of war camp. That's true. Rock manages to escape the Mauser, but is knocked out by the Major's metallic hand. The Major then grabs him by the ankles and pulls him back to the POW camp. Whilst being dragged, Rock remembers being with Easy Company, manning the forward machine gun posted five miles west of the forest one week ago. Part 2. Easy Company play baseball with snowballs whilst Rock sits the gun until the German plane attacks. Rock fires at it, but it drops a bomb and that explodes against the trees and sends the soldiers flying to the ground. The plane shoots at the fallen soldiers on its second run, but Rock takes the machine gun in hand, despite the ice-cold metal burning his skin, and shoots it down. Rock then sends Easy Company back to base, but an enemy tank blocks their way, so he takes a rocket launcher and heads towards it, hiding in the darkness of the forest. The tank shines a searchlight on him that stuns him and shoots at him in his moment of blindness, but the bullet bounces off his head and sends him to the ground. The tank shoots over Rock and at Easy Company as they fire at it. Rock then takes the rocket launcher and fires it at the tank, blowing it up. He then sends them back for good this time, and tells them to tell the CEO that the enemy's probing the spot. Later that night, after ice and snow froze around Rock, an enemy patrol sees Rock, and thinking he's frozen soldier, throw a grenade at him. Part 3. Rock cracks the ice coating around him to fire at the grenade and hits it, but the explosion knocks him out. He woke up some time later in an enemy POW camp where Major Iron greeted him. The Major tells Rock about his prosthetic hand and that Rock will help the Major show the rest of the army that he's still the greatest German soldier. That night, the orderly came in and, when Rock went to look out the window and saw a river far below, told him that there is no way out other than the elevator inside the cliff and that the Forest of Forgotten Skulls gets its name from all the soldiers who jumped out of the windows. As he slept, Rock remembers his jump off the Golden Gate Bridge when he was a paratrooper. Rock and his brother Josh were given orders to prove that it's possible to paraglide from great heights without parachutes. During the fall, Josh lost control and began spinning down. Rock went to grab him, but Josh pushed him away, saying that he shouldn't risk failing the mission trying to save him. The mission was successful, but Josh died, and so Rock transferred to the infantry. After Rock wakes up, the orderly tells him that the Major thinks Rock is a better soldier than he is, but will not act against him until Rock tries to escape. The Major then walks in and informs him that they've received intel that Easy Company will be coming to attack the camp in 24 hours, but the Germans have already laced the forest with burning oil for a fire trap that only the Major can spring. Rock then grabbed a water pitcher on the table and swung it at the Major, but he shattered it with his hand and hit Rock across the head. After the Major leaves, Rock sees his brother fly out the window, telling him that this is the one big jump he's been training for. He leaps out of the window and makes it down safely and his brother leaves him. As Rock scrambles out of the water, the Major shoots at him, having waited for him to fall. Rock stumbles through the forest whilst the Major shoots at him, before knocking him out with his hand. The Major then grabs Rock by the ankles and drags him back to base, but Rock kicked him in the side before being thrown across the floor. Rock grabs a busted bayonet 
from the skeletons around him and jumped it at the Major, who snapped it with his hand. After being thrown again, Rock realises that they're fighting on the booby traps, and that if he'd landed any harder, the trap would have ignited. The Major leaps on Rock and beats him until Rock rolls out of the way, letting the Major hit the trap, igniting it. Rock makes his way to Easy Company and orders them to tell HQ to bomb the forest before the attack on the camp. After the bombing, Easy Company walk past the burning body of Iron Major. I presume he gets better. Oh yeah. Because uh, in a later issue. he was very good, so it seems a shit to kill such a great bad guy. Um, the splash page is great. The top three quarters of the page shows the Iron Major hacking through a GI's rifle with his bionic hand as both fight in the snow, whilst the bottom has Rock introduce himself directly to the reader in a fourth wall-breaking moment. Page two, the fourth wall-breaking continues on throughout the issue, with Rock introducing himself again on the next page. You know, in case we forgot in the time it takes us to turn yeah. the page. I always find this an odd storytelling device because it removes the jeopardy. Whilst I'm sure on some level we know they're not going to kill the title character, having him narrate the tale in the past tense kind of gives it away that he's going to survive. I did like the story begins deep into itself. Rock is already on the ropes with the Iron Major clearly having gained the upper hand and taunting Rock with his imminent defeat. The art is great on this page and all the way through. And yeah. I say that as not the biggest Cubert fan in the world. Mm. But I did actually think that this was fantastic artwork. That I like the storytelling on this. It's not quite out of gas. But no. But the... I mean, I'll mention it later on, but there's a flashback within a flashback. Yeah. Which I thought was quite intelligent. Uh, page four. Rock loses. Iron Major takes Rock out, despite a truly gritty and engaging fight scene in which Rock is outclassed at every turn by the cold, calculating Nazi. I have no knowledge of Iron Major and only know a little about Sergeant Rock. Yeah. I remember I've got an issue of DC Comics Presents where he meets Superman. Yeah. And I'm sure I've got an issue of The Brave and the Bull where he meets Batman. I don't remember how. Yeah. The, the DC Comics Presents one I've got is Superman coming out of a grave. Okay. Easy Company are walking away from the grave saying we've just buried a brave man. Yeah. And Superman's flying out of the grave in a GI outfit. Okay. But the shirt's open to reveal the S. Yeah. I'm sure that's the DC Comics Presents I've got. I don't remember... The Brave and the Bold one's a weird one. The Brave and the Bold one is a meta one, where the writer of the story is in the story. Yeah. I'm sure that's the one with Sergeant Rock in it. Anyway, but we're not talking about that comic. We're talking about this one, and this is a great way to start your story, with the main character defeated and down, but not giving up, as Easy Company's lives depend on it. It was, it was excellent. Pages 6 through 8 were an excellent fight scene, with Rock's crew taking a breather to play baseball with snowballs. A German fighter swoops in for a dive and wounding the company except Rock, who returns fire with a thirty caliber machine gun from the ground. The German aircraft looked like a Stuka, but it doesn't have the bent wings. But the thirty cal was a Browning M1919 Browning machine gun, used quite regularly by the US Army in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. What we see here is the first flashback in the story. So the story is told almost at the end. We flash back to how it began. Later on, we'll get a flashback within a flashback. Yeah. Which is always an intriguing uh, mm. storytelling device. I like the realism of this scene. Yes. Where it goes from them playing baseball to them being attacked and some of them being killed. Yeah. And Rock burning his hand on the metal. Yeah. As he uh, as he fires the gun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a weird contrast to the Sergeant Fury issue. The Sergeant Fury issue has pathos and yeah. drama 
and a downbeat ending. Mm. But like I say, it plays more like um, an A-Team episode, but a bit more serious. Well, what I was trying to say with it is the same story, but they're separated because of the Marvelization and the yeah. DCs. The D- DC seems to be... I don't want to say they're treating it a lot more seriously, because you never get the feeling Stan and Jack are not treating the subject seriously. No. But... If you didn't know who published them, uh, the Sergeant Fury still reads like a Marvel yeah, story. Yeah, it's very definite. It is a very clear delineation between Marvel and DC. Yeah. This reads as a much more gritty war story than the Sergeant Fury one did, despite mm. the fact that they essentially both covered the same themes yeah. of the, the roughneck leader. And who would you rather follow into battle, Fury or Rock? Uh-huh. I don't that's an interesting one that isn't it I get the feeling you've probably got a better chance of coming back alive under Sergeant Fury mm. I get the feeling Sergeant Rocky is quite prepared to be a suicide mission when well, in when in war and the only Sergeant Fury you read that ending <laughs> yeah I mean, but not everyone's like that they were they were in that situation there and they thought we're not getting out of this one yeah but by and large they're always quite confident that they're coming back mm. I mean apart from a few cases obviously um the action continues throughout the next couple of pages where Rock pulls rank on his wounded comrades and then takes off alone. Waiting for the patrol to come in, Rock manages to hold out overnight and we get the cover, which in an unusual turn of events for this era is exactly like the cover of the issue, isn't it? Yeah. It's exactly as it's depicted on the cover. There's no cheating. Um, before that, though, we had the excellent scene where Rock guns down the German Stukas with the Browning. Yeah. It's he's last man standing and he guns them down from the floor, which was an awesome, awesome fight scene. And even later on when the tank comes in and he takes it down with the Browning. Mm. It's this was an excellent sequence of, of um of fight panels. I like the moment where he, he goes in all oh I can take the tank down, I'll just hide in the shadows and it shouts the torch on him. Yeah. It's 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 fantastically executed. Mm. Uh, series of action beats really well done the artwork's brilliant Rock swivels his browning around if you're wondering how he got out of the cover the part two ends as Michael said with them hurling the grenade nicknamed the potato smasher although it was actually a model 24 steel hand grenade Um, and he swivels around quickly blowing it up in mid-air it's awesome stuff Mm. I get, I took from that that his firing at the grenade pushed it backwards before it blew up. Yeah. Because otherwise that means that as the story progresses, Rock survives two near-death explosions in this one issue. But doesn't that add to what the Iron Mage is trying to do in this issue? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's slightly implausible that he's that near to two explosions in one issue and well, survives both. This beginner's been implausible so far. Yeah. In, in this entire issue, he, sur- he survives a fall that kills everyone. Yeah. And he, he holds out in the ice-cold, freezing weather and just... Yeah, I was a bit confused about All he says there is, get me a coat. Yeah. So if it plummets to zero degrees and under... And he's fine with that coat. Yeah, it must be a very good coat. Yeah. That's the only thing I can assume. Um, amusingly, on page 14, Auf Wiedersehen spelt wrong. Okay. I thought that was quite amusing. Auf Wiedersehen is spelt here W I E D E R S E H N. It should be S E H N. 
Okay. S-E-H-E-N, sorry. Right. There's an extra E that they're missing. I only know that because our Vidazen pet used to be on every week. So every week you would see our Vidazen on TV. Yeah. That's why I was looking at that going, that's not spelt right. <laughs> uh, the Iron Major is a fantastic villain. Yeah. He's really, really good. He dominates the entire issue, despite appearing very little. He's exactly what you want a bad guy to be. Mm. He's burly in the issue, yet his presence dominates the whole thing. There's an interesting character reversal about him as well. Like, he thinks the hero is better than him. Yeah. Whereas, say, with Lex Luthor, he thinks he's better than the hero. Well, under Nazi mythology of the time, he's not perfect anymore because he's lost his hand. Yeah. So he's he's inferior. Mm. And if he believes the doctrine of Hitler then he believes himself to be inferior. Yeah. Which he does, doesn't he? He believes that Fury is... Uh, Fury... That Rock is better than him. I thought that was just quite interesting, though, because it's very rare that a villain does things. Yeah. He's a great villain. He's just a fantastic villain. His motivation is really strong. He's been relegated due to losing his hand and opted for the Iron One. But he believes it makes him stronger rather than weaker, which is what Hitler thinks. And he longs to be back on the front line. Um... Obviously, Hitler was in in favour of the perfect race. But he's, he's not bitter, is he? No. He's quite laid back about the whole thing. He's supremely confident mm. and very coldly amusing in a lot of places. He's, um, I did like as well that they didn't have that ridiculous faux German. They have ways of making guitar, yeah? Yeah. Oktoberfest. They didn't bother with any of that in this. Mm. They just included German words. Yeah, they just included German words, albeit spelled wrong, but, you know. (laughs) Uh, He's a very good adversary for Sergeant Rat, this guy. I really, really did like the Iron Major. Uh, Page 15 through 16, as we mentioned, is a flashback within a flashback. Yeah. Comics were so far ahead of the time, weren't they? With stuff like this. You wouldn't see this kind of storytelling in films or television for at least another 20-odd years. Yeah. From this point. Comics really don't get the, the due, do they? No. I just found it funny how this was set up earlier on in the issue. Yeah. Say, Rock, what made you transfer from the paratroopers to the infantry? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you think that'll play into the story at some point? Gee. I, I thought it was actually quite well structured. Uh, it's an excellent flashback. It gives us some motivations for Rock. It's a little bit convenient that Rock was the one to show how to dive into the sea from a great height, but vowed never to do it again due to the tragedy only to be put in that exact same situation in this story. But it works dramatically, and it's well handled, and the art is fantastic. My only complaint, I really doubt when you're plummeting to your death from the Golden Gate Bridge, you would have enough time for a full-page conversation with your brother. I kind of doubt that. One would imagine that you'd go, Hey, Rock, I can't splat! (laughs) But, you know... It works within the context of the story, doesn't it? Because we've talked many, many times before how comics... There is no way in hell he could have that conversation in the time it takes him to do that. Yeah. So that's kind of something that you gloss over in comics. Um, Rock survives another close quarters explosion. I mean, at least he's badly wounded in both of them. Yeah. So it's not like he walks away unharmed. I like the bit where... um Rock, we're seeing what Rock's seeing when the Iron Major tells him about the traps. Yeah, the, the Iron Major is just describing what's going on. Yeah, and Rock's seeing it in his mind's eye. So essentially, he's seeing Easy Company get wiped out, uh, and then obviously he takes the dive 
from the prison cell window, which doesn't have any bars on it, because they're so confident that no one can survive the fall. Yeah. Of course, Sergeant Rock survives the fall into the water. And then there's another excellent fight scene between the Iron Major and Rock that the Iron Major wins. Yeah. Doesn't he? Iron Major owns Rock in this issue. Rock's just lucky that he was thrown on the... Yeah. The he manages to kick the Iron Major and he falls onto... Um, one of the booby traps. Yeah. That's the only reason Rock survives. The Iron Major's kicking the crap out of him. Mm. So I did like that as well, that Major's not, uh, Rock's not a superhero. He's just won because of luck. Yeah. I mean, it's a well that you can go back to too many times that your hero survives on dumb luck. Yeah. But I quite liked it here. It worked here because he is getting the crap beat out of him. Um, I, I actually thought this was genuinely excellent. It was a nice counterpoint to the Sergeant Fury comic of the same time. Both of them do not shy away from the horrors of war, although I found it interesting that the far more action-adventure-orientated book Sergeant Fury should be the one that depicts death in a more realistic light than Sergeant Rock. Both Rock and Fury are similar enough characters to be considered archetypes, but Fury is given more characterization in his relationship with his men, his senior officer, and his would-be girlfriend, whereas Rock is focused on the mission at the expense of all else. The Rock story is more of an endurance test, with Rock moving from one seemingly impossible situation to another and surviving on guts alone. Rock survived two grenade explosions and sub-zero temperatures in this story, and is depicted of, of more of a, not a superhero, but more of a, an unkillable machine than Fury is. The Nazis in both are despicable and without redemption, although Fury does try to characterise them as believing they're in the right, whilst the story clearly shows that not to be the case. But the Iron Major was an excellent villain, arguably better than many of the ones that Sergeant Fury has met in the, the first ten or so issues I've read. He's characterised much better even than Rock. There's no feeling of empathy for easy company as there is for the howlers as they're merely there with only one of them a Native American soldier given any background at all whereas the howlers are given clear character rates that whilst they are painted in broad strokes at least exist meaning the death of Juniper has some impact on the reader in microcosm as Michael's pointed out it's the difference between Marvel and DC at the time both are hugely enjoyable, highly entertaining reads, depicting similar situations, but the DC one is handled in a much more dispassionate manner. Both damn good, though. Mm. I really did like these a great deal. Uh, there's an interesting letters page where they're asking about the difference between um, the US and the UK's bombing strategies, nighttime bombing or daylight bombing which uh, the, the British preferred the nighttime bombing and the Americans preferred the daytime. It's a very interesting answer to it as well, where it doesn't come down on either side. It says both have the pros and cons. Yeah. And then there's an interesting letter from uh, Donald Galatino, where they're talking about um, the Peeps, which was a little vehicle that was similar to a motorcycle. And you can subscribe. And there's an 80-page giant Lois Lane issue, in which Lois is fencing against Lana Lang, and Superman dates Laurie the Mermaid, Cleopatra, and... It looks oddly like he's, he's doing it with Supergirl as well. Yeah. Which is just a little bit icky. So he's, he's going with five women in that issue. Yes, yes, because he's, he's going with Cleopatra as well. That was good, that. An yeah. excellent choice. Well done. Uh, thanks again to Luke for providing us with a copy of that. Otherwise, Michael would have had to go for Plan B. Uh -huh. And in fact, that should have been last week's episode, shouldn't it? Yep. But uh, we had Wibbly to swap. Wibbly-wobbly time. Wibbly-wobbly time. Yeah, we had to swap the order around. Um... 
so we have time to actually read them and do notes. Mm-hmm. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, hopefully I won't be uh, Snotty McHeadcold and you won't be Flem. Hopefully we'll be yeah. back to being our alter egos, millionaire player by Andrew Leyland yeah. and his youthful ward, Michael. You like being a youthful ward. Uh, next week I have picked Venerable British Institution 2000 AD. What have you picked? Not sure yet. <laughs> oh, God. Nothing like being last minute, is oh, it? Yeah. It's great. All right. We hope you will join us for that. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Goodbye. expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show, which is a source of much consternation. New episodes drop every Thursday over at twotruefreaks.libson.com which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they have discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website, www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name, and comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. over my 20 books and scrolled down where I can't actually read what I'm saying.